I want to start with a question that's maybe a little off topic, but I was going through your information that you'd written down, and there was something that jumped out at me from the period when you were living in Chicago, and I wanted to see if you could just describe a little bit the impact of this, but you mentioned seeing Muddy Waters that Alice has revisited a number of times and as a huge fan of his music. Uh, could you just describe what it was like to see him live in that period and around what year that would be? That would be maybe 71, 72, mm -hmm. 73. Uh, and I don't know if Alice's Revisit is still there. Maybe, maybe not. So. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, he was... I didn't see him several times. I saw him a few times. Mm -hmm. And he was like, um, you know, it's like if I was sitting there, that's how close it was to the stage. And, um, you know, he played, um, you know, he played the, the, the bottleneck, the slide guitar. But there was just so much, it's like every note, there was like so much power and just uh, so many different levels, you know, emotionally, uh, sound-wise, uh, and you know expression mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that made a big big impression on me just uh, you know these these kind of little tiny notes between the notes that you get with a slide instrument mm -hmm. uh, if played if played in a certain way if played right can have such a an enormous uh, visceral at least to me mm -hmm. effect did that you think that had any impact seeing him play slide like that on the idea anything you brought to the pedal steel or it's just a separate entity for you. Well, I think as, as, as human beings, we're kind of a collection of everything <laughs> that happened in the past, um, at least that which we didn't forget. Um, but yeah, I think it did. He wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't a great virtuoso, you know, mm -hmm. like, but it's, it's the fact that you can play one note, and, and if you play it right, it, it has... It, it just has a, a real strong impact and, mm -hmm. and, and, and a, a certain meaning. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you hear that a lot in, in, in lots of in, lots, lots of instruments mm -hmm. and, and in voices. But uh, that just happened to be the one that affected me. Yeah, yeah, yeah I just, I'm just jealous. <laughs> um, you mentioned a bit uh, about some of your history with country music, and and for someone who only met you in September last year and not knowing a lot about your background, for me, the trajectory of being, you know, working, I think maybe making a living too as a musician for years, um, and then getting to where you are now. Uh, you know, tonight you played a bunch of pieces, but I've seen you and worked with you where it's completely improvised. That's a real motion from one, one place to a really different musical context. Can you talk a little bit about playing that music, how it affected you, and how did you get to where you're working today? Well, for one, I, I, had, I had sort of been into whatever you'd call it, weird music, mm -hmm. since a very young age. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it was when I got hit on the head and everything was different then, I don't know. But um, when I was, when the Beatles came out, I liked the Dave Clark Five. Mm -hmm. You know, not because they were better than the Beatles, but they were different and everybody mm -hmm. else liked the Beatles. Um, when I was maybe 13 or 14, uh, Frank Zappa's album, uh, Freak Out, mm -hmm. came out. And that was like, um, you know, a gateway drug for me. <laughs> and um, so um, I immediately checked out Edgar Varese. 
Mm. Oh, because of the, when he talks about it. Yeah, and um, and so I, uh, one of the first four, uh, 33 and a third LPs that I bought was um, uh, Edgar Varese's uh, uh, Amarique. Oh, wow. Which I, I um, tonight I, I referenced that very briefly mm. uh, in the middle of a, an improvisation somewhere. And, you know, I, I would, like, dance around the, the living room when nobody was there, you know, <laughs> along to this weird music. And um, I was introduced to uh, John Coltrane's uh, music, his, his later work, actually, when I was about the same age, uh, back when they used to have underground FM radio stations. And I would listen to that late at night when I was going to sleep. And I remember that they came on, it was this, um, I think it was Invocation to Ohm. And it was from an album that had just come out called John Coltrane is His Greatest Years. Hmm. I think that was maybe in 1968, maybe uh -huh. about a year after he died. So I, I was into that, but I was into blues. I was into, country, I mean, I was just, back then it was like, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I liked country music. I liked the, there's, there's, a, uh, there's, there's an emotional directness to it. And uh, deceptive very deceptively simple. Mm -hmm. It's anyone who's played another form of music and sat in with a country band, uh, you know, they, they kind of, what, country? <laughs> Give me a break, three chords? And then they get mm -hmm. into it and, and, you know, you can see them after about two songs. It's like, what, what, <laughs> you know? Because every, every form of music has its unwritten rules. So I heard the pedal steel guitar and the great steel guitar players were all playing country music. And um, so I kind of slid into that, and um, so that was going on. And then at, at home, I was, you know, playing weird stuff, but not really weird enough, not connecting with anybody. And then later, I, I found some people who were sort of into the same kind of music I was. Uh, and was this in Houston? It was in Houston, Houston, yes. Okay. And then and around what years was, was this? That would have been in the 80s, 80s okay. early 90s. And then um, I started getting into Ornette Coleman, and there was like, that sounds out of tune, you know, and so there I was by myself again. <laughs> and um, so it was kind of a gradual, this was going on, but this was always in the background. Okay. okay. And, um, and then this kind of came forward, and the other things sort of slid back. So nowadays, I still play country gigs, but very rarely, and, mm. and I miss it, because okay. it's, a, it's a beautiful beautiful music.
ask a question, even though we moved the instrument back, talk a little bit about technically what's involved because the first time I met Susan, we actually recorded like right away, like we hadn't talked. We did, we, yeah, we didn't even know it. We didn't know it, and, and still Joe Mc, yeah, we still. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with Joe McPhee, but when we first started setting up and and going over things uh, for this recording, I kind of got completely captivated by the instrument because I'd never seen it up close before, and there's a lot of m mechanics involved that are completely. For me, counterintuitive. I wonder if you could describe a little bit what makes it different than, let's say, a slide guitar, or what's involved with the pedals, and different aspects. Well, it's it's basically the same thing as a slide guitar, in a way, uh, in that it you play it with a slide. Mm -hmm. What the pedals do, and these knee levers that I was was hitting, what they do is they they change the tension on different strings, uh, and you can sort of set it up how you how how you want it to do how do you want it to be you can't i mean it takes a long time you have to decide okay i want so i'm playing i'm playing a c and i want to maybe have a knee lever to lower my c to a b or another one to raise my c to c sharp most steel guitar players will have pedals that uh, will move uh, maybe two or three different strings and I try to keep them so that most of them will just move one. So that if I'm playing, say, a, a, a two C's and an chord, I can I can get a C sharp on top of that. Mm -hmm. So that gives you some dissonance. Um, the guitar is tuned uh, low C. Uh, it's twelve strings, so it's the, the lowest note is like that on a cello. And I have a pedal that lowers the bottom string down to an A flat mm. below that C. So it's C, low C, D, F, A, C, D, E, G, A, C, E, D. So it's kind of like a 6-9 mm -hmm. uh, tuning with, a, with your fourth, the F, sort of towards the bottom. And it's, uh, you know, it's, fairly, it's diatonic. Uh, most steel players have one that you strum a big chord, and mine you can't do that. You have to, you have to pick. Mm -hmm. But the uh, and with pedal steel, there's there's always a payoff because you kind of have to program it to do what you want to do. And the mechanical limitations are that um, uh, you add one thing, there's something else you can't do. Mm -hmm. So mine, I, I can't strum the big chords, but I can get maybe. Chords that to me are more interesting, maybe with some dissonance and um, and so there's all these uh, rods underneath, and so you push down the pedal, it changes the pitch of the string. That's where you get the um, and it's kind of a Rube Goldberg uh, contraption. And the first the first steel guitar that had pedals was 1953. It was a recording by Webb Pierce, uh, Slowly. And after that came out, everybody who played non-pedal steel tried to figure out a way to put, mm. to, to put pedals on theirs to get that sound. Mm. And so that was one pedal just changing two strings. It basically changed uh, the third to a fourth and the fifth to a sixth. So it basically changed from a one chord to a four chord. Um, and then it just sort of grew, you know, different people were doing things and 
you know, a lot of old men in their garages and, you know, and, um, you know, it was just all these different ideas and there were some, I mean, uh, you know, there was people with degrees in physics that were working on this, so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an, an instrument and um, uh, it's a work in progress, I guess. Oh yeah, I want to ask you about your connection with the music of Astor Piazzolla, because that the things you were doing in the solo performance were so beautiful. Was there a thing where you you heard his music when you were in Argentina and it just knocked you out, or you went there because you had heard his music, or how did that come about? Um, a friend of mine was a uh, publicist for um, Pangea Records, which he uh, put out uh, an album, Tango Zero Hour. And I listened to that, and I liked it. I kind of felt it was a little too dark. Mm -hmm. um, this was like 1986, 1987. But the, the music captivated me. And uh, so he, he came with his uh, quintet, actually his sextet, because he had had a heart attack mm -hmm. um, a year or two earlier. So he had another bandoneon player uh, oh. playing with him, just in case, you know, he's, he couldn't. He didn't make it through the gig. Yeah, or, or you know, maybe he get, get tired. Yeah. Show must go on. So, um, yeah, just don't break any strings. But, um, so, and I, I was kind of hesitant about whether to go to the, the concert because I had a gig that night and paid $75, which 30-something years ago, yeah, that was nothing to sneeze at. And I was making my living. So, you know, you need to pay rent. But I went, and I was just absolutely, totally captivated. And, and I remember seeing his piano player, and I don't know why, but the little finger at the very bottom end of the piano, you know, that just, I don't know, it just did something to me. And the music I like, I think it's something that, that has a visceral effect. Mm. And, and maybe that's, that's how we, we like music, because it... It, it gets us phys it gets us physically. I think, you know, maybe it's our nervous system that that uh, determines our, our likes in music mm -hmm. rather than our ears or, or or brains, and and that one affected me in that way. Uh, I had always wanted to record a solo album. It was music. Uh, I was just, I mean, it was like a curse almost because I couldn't get away. There's other things I could have been doing, you <laughs> know, and, and maybe doing better. So I went down to Argentina to try to learn more about his music. Oh, wow. And, and I worked on, on his tunes on and off for ever since then. Did and you study with anyone when you were down in Argentina? Or just go check out tango? And, I, and yeah, I basically did that. I, I, took, I took a couple lessons. Uh, I didn't bring my steel guitar with me. The, well, I, I went there twice. Um, so I, I took a guitar, which I don't play well. Mm. And and, and um, the guy was like, 
you can't play well. I'm wasting your time. Um, so idiot that I am. So, so yeah, and then um, I, I had a day job, and I quit my day job so that I could do that album because I figured, oh, wow. well, before I die, at least I want to say I did this. I wanted to ask you also about another person that's had impact on you, because we've had a few musicians here who study with Pauline Oliveros, but haven't really talked about uh, her work with them. I was just wondering if you could describe a bit your association, uh, any impact she had on you. She had a, she had an enormous impact. Um, I met her in, um, I think, 1990, 91, when she had uh, some deep listening, a deep listening retreat. I think it was the first one that she did in uh, in northern New Mexico on a mountain. And um, we stayed in touch. My daughters took piano lessons from her mother, oh. uh, Edith Gutierrez. Oh, excuse me a second. How did you hear about her music? Like, what made you go to the retreat? What was the? Connection? I didn't really know that much at okay. the time, to be perfectly honest. Okay. I just sounds like a you know, I, I was just into new things, I oh. guess. Um, but um, it, it made sense to me in a lot of ways. She is a very, uh, and, and it's hard for me to, to put into words, um, a very holistic approach. And what she talks about listening isn't like, oh, let's just listen to music. It's kind of getting a feeling for the room, for, uh, for the space that you're in, and maybe for the, the people in the room. Uh, as well, which is, is something that I think I pay more attention to. Um, so a lot of her music is, is very uh, environmental. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she did things in a big cistern, and um, I, I think I, I, I played more like that 20 years ago than maybe I do now. How do you mean play like that? Thinking more about the environment you're in, or yeah, the way yeah, you play? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's um, I don't know I, I I don't know if I have words for it to be mm -hmm. I mean I there there's there's a certain feeling mm -hmm. but I I just don't feel like I'm able to translate that okay. very well. Okay. Well, we'll keep I'll keep asking people. <laughs> um, the oh yeah I wanted to ask you about Eugene Chadbourne and Shockabilly so that that was a group that had uh, a person in a group that had impact on you. Yeah. Um, when I first heard Shockabilly, I thought. This is what I, this is this is what I've always been looking for, mm -hmm. uh, because he he kind of took these 
these old country tunes, and then he got a bunch of free jazz musicians from New York, and they sort of recorded it. <laughs> and the the vibe in New York at the time, you know, with John Zorn and everything, was, you know, you can do anything you want as long as it's not country. <laughs> so so that's what he did. Um, play some, you know, Eugene. Yeah. And uh, we recorded uh, we recorded three albums together. Okay. And uh, so it was a lot of fun. He's mm -hmm. a he's a good musician. Houston in the early 90s? 2007. Okay, 11 years ago. Almost. <laughs> Close. Close. The very, very late 90s, actually. And you told me earlier that you went there, but you weren't really doing a lot in Houston at that point, and you wanted to go to a new environment. Can you talk about the scene in Baltimore? It seems like it's a pretty active, experimental, improvising music scene. Yeah, it's very DIY. I hadn't played in Houston regularly, and for me, performing my own the music that I like to play, I had to I had to travel to do it. And if you live in Houston, that's that's a long way to go. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I I moved up to Baltimore, and uh, I just felt like I, I needed to grow a little bit more, and I felt like that kind of change would maybe maybe help with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and the uh, the music scene there, for a small city, I mean, five hundred thousand. That's to me. That, I mean, it doesn't seem small now that I live there, but mm -hmm. at the time it did. There was just so much going on, and you know, people were just trying anything. And Peabody uh, Conservatory was also there, and Michael Formanek was living there at the time, and Dave Ballou and. Uh, you know, some really good musicians. And in Houston, it was hard to find anybody who would play with me, you know, because I guess it's a little too weird. And in Baltimore, you know, there's all these people who are like really good musicians that I admire. So, yeah, we want to play with you. And I'm like, really? Okay. Yeah. So, um, and then it was close to New York, you know, there's that sort of New York thing that sort of affects that whole part of the that whole part of the East Coast. So um, so it was for me. I guess it was a good thing. And Baltimore, yeah, Bonnie Jones, and there's a, there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, you know electroacoustic music there. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of noise music. 
people who play country music or, or Americana will go out and, you know, see um, somebody playing free jazz. Mm-hmm. Or and then you know a lot of a lot of uh, traveling musicians come through there because mm-hmm. there's so many cities close together. Yeah, these coasts. So yeah, so it was it was a good good thing. That's good. All right, well I'll uh, turn the table over to any questions in the audience. So, what was your first record? The first record I bought. <laughs> um, yeah, I just said I didn't like the Beatles, but <laughs> it was uh, it was a forty-five. If I recall correctly, uh, what was the, what was the uh, Good Day Sunshine? I don't remember what was on the other side. <laughs> good Day Sunshine. <laughs> was that re- the reason that you didn't like them after that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't dislike them. No, but I, 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 I just did. Uh, else? A really quick one. What was the airline that? So we don't fly on it. It starts with a K and ends with an M, and there's an L between them. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else? (laughs) Musically based? (laughs) Oh, yeah, sure. It talks about a lot of your kind of like musical influences aside from the pedal steel guitar, but who were some, were there any pedal steel guitar players that really affected you? Oh yeah, um, there were several. Probably the most famous pedal steel guitar player before Randolph, Robert Randolph came along was Buddy Emmons. And um, somebody gave me uh, his black album. It's called Emmons Steel Guitar. That he recorded, I believe, in 1962, and it still sounds. I mean, it doesn't sound dated at all. And I listened to that over and over again. Lloyd Green was another one. Um, and Jimmy Day. I mean, you listen to his music, you just feel like crying. It's just so, so heartfelt and beautiful. I liked the uh, the jazz uh, steel guitar players, Curly Chalker, uh, Maurice Anderson, who was kind of a mentor to me, um, and uh, Joaquin Murphy, who um, played with uh, Spade Cooley back in the uh, the 1940s, I think. So those were those were some of the steel guitar players that, that really um, and a lot of the Nashville players they you know they all play so well. You want more question? Kind of piggybacking off of that, are there non-musical influences that have found their way into your music? Yeah, I guess so. And that's kind of a hard one to explain. I think it's different with everybody. I mean, or I don't know because I've never talked to anybody about what you think about when you're playing. But sometimes I'll, um, I'll play a certain note and that'll just make me think of a person or of a color. Um, and I'm not like one of these people that, you know, every sound is a color. But yeah, there's a lot of subtle things. And I, and I think that uh, uh, as a musician, as an artist, as a human being, what you do is, is you, you can't escape, or, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it, Everything, everything you've been through, I think, I think affects you, and and I think maybe that comes through with, I don't know, my phrasing or, you know, or whatever. So there is quite a bit, um, but I don't know that I can, you know, give you specific instances. But yes, I don't know. Do you do you have? Oh yeah, I mean, for me, film is a big influence. The films that I watch. 
well, not a lot of them, some of them have impact on the way I think about the way I construct music or compose something. Is there something like that for you? Is there like a writer that has had a lot of impact? Even if it isn't so direct? Yes. Is there, something that... there are writers and, and there are movies. Mm -hmm. um, I remember watching um, uh, Bergman's Virgin Spring. Mm -hmm. And that affected me and, and I, I immediately sat down to my steel guitar and wrote a piece called Virgin Spring, you know, it was all that kind of revenge kind of thing. There was a movie, um, an Indian movie called Bandit Queen, about this uh, uh, woman, an untouchables, and she, she was raped and she went and got revenge. And not that I, not revenge is a big yeah. thing, <laughs> but just the movie affected me. And uh, writers, um, uh, there's a writer, Gita Mehta, who wrote a book called uh, A River Sutra. And um, I, uh, the first solo album I recorded was in 1999 called Uma. And Uma was a character in oh, okay. that book. It was called Uma's River Song of Love. So that, that had a And uh, another one would be uh, Carlos Fuentes, Terra Nova. That had a big effect also musically. <laughs> 